Well, it's great to be back with you guys this morning. You can turn to Genesis 1. I know we were there last week. We'll start there again. I'm kicking off a series with you. For the next three weeks, we're going to go through the entire Bible together. We're going to go from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, in three weeks. Now, that's a a lot of material. You can tell we only had three songs this morning. So I had a lot to cover each week. This isn't even the big week. So lots to cover. And so that begs the question, why? Why should we take so much effort over the next three weeks to walk all the way through the Bible from cover to cover? Well, before I learned this material, so about 20 years ago, when I would read the Bible, like if it was time to sit down and have a quiet time and you open up your Bible, it's time to read something. Reading the Bible to me was kind of like grabbing stuff out of a grab bag. To me, it was like the Bible was just a collection of random stories and commands that were all thrown together into a bag and somebody shook it up and I'd just open the Bible to wherever it was. I'd reach in and I'd grab a passage. I'd pull it out and and let's see, it's time for a quiet time. Let me reach in there and I pull one out and, oh, hey, it's the story of David and Goliath. I I like that one. That's fun. So let's, let's put that on the table. Read that. Okay, shake it back up. Let's reach back in. What do we got now? Queen Jezebel eaten by dogs. I don't really want to read that today, so let's put that back inside. <laughs> Shake it up, reach in. Okay, let's see. Oh, we have the, the law, the Ten Commandments. So the law, that's good commands. You can learn a lot from that. Let's put that on the table. Okay, let's shake it up. Maybe something from the New Testament now. That'd be good. Let's reach in there. Oh, Romans 10. I like Romans. This is where Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Wait a minute. How, how do I fit that? With that one, I I don't know what to do. The the Bible is just all these stories and commands and some fit together and and some didn't. For me, reading the Bible was kind of like reading Twitter. It was just a whole lot of random things thrown together and I didn't know how to make heads or tails of a lot of it. But then Brian taught me and some of the other guys 20 years ago this study. The whole Bible from cover to cover. And he opened our eyes to see the one grand story that God is telling in the pages of Scripture. A story that begins in Genesis 1-1 and ends at the end of Revelation. One great story that's actually greater than the sum of its parts. A story that, that includes you and includes me. It gives us purpose and life. And, and as I began to see this story unfold from the pages of Scripture, Scripture, it radically changed my relationship to the Bible. From then on, every time I opened the Bible, it wasn't a, a bag of random stuff. It was one great story, the greatest story ever told, having great power to transform my life. So my prayer for each of you over these next three weeks as I'm with you is that the same moment of transformation will happen for you in your relationship to this book. I'm praying and hoping that you will come to see this one grand story, that it will be compelling and powerful in your life. Now, there is a lot that we're covering to help you. I've made handouts. So if you're on the edge of an aisle, I think kind of towards the centers of the aisles, if you look down, there's a stack of handouts under some of the aisles. If you'll take one and pass it down. Each week, you will be getting a handout. There are blanks because I like doing that. You'll pay attention. Maybe you'll stay awake. So um, you'll fill it out. Hopefully you have something to write with you. There's some pencils in the pew backs. If you don't, 
Um, I'll give you the answers as we go through so you can fill it out as you go. Um, I've also given you key scripture throughout, and I encourage you this coming week to go back to this handout and look up some of those key passages so that they can really sink in to your mind. And then at the end of the handout, if you flip it over and look at the back, I've given you reflection questions to help you take this material deeper and really think about and process how what you're learning affects your life. Okay, so you'll get a handout each week to help you through this material. So let's get started. You'll see that there is a picture at the top of the handout. Same picture every week. It is my chart of the whole story of the Bible. You'll notice that there is one word on this chart that is not like the others. One that is bigger font. One that is in the center. It is the big idea of the whole Bible. This is a place where the Sunday School answer is correct. What is the whole Bible about? Jesus. Jesus is right at the center of everything. Everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament point back to Jesus. It's all ultimately about Jesus. He is the center of this story. He is what it's all about. So to help us understand this story that is centered on Jesus, I have summarized it in nine words. Okay, so these nine words, kind of nine chapters of this greatest story ever written, will take three each week for the next three weeks. So today we're going to do creation, revolt, and promise. Next week we're going to do law, king, and hope. And in the final week we'll do Jesus, church, and shalom. If after those three weeks you can remember those nine words, you've got the whole Bible. Whole Bible in nine words. Okay, that is the great story. That the Bible tells. So I'm excited to jump into this. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 1, where we enter into chapter 1, which is creation. We talked about this in detail last week. We're just going to hit some of the high points here, just read little bits of this and summarize where we were last week. So, Genesis chapter 1. If you'll look with me starting in verse 1, we'll just read a bit of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now let's skip down, all the way to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now skip to the last verse in the chapter. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, as we talked about last week, this This chapter, it's been very controversial in the last couple hundred years. Lots of people debating about what does Genesis 1 fit with science? What does it say? How does it correlate with all we learn in science? We talked about last week how Genesis 1 is not primarily about how or when the world was made. That's not the point of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is primarily about who made the world and why. 
Those are the questions that this chapter of scripture is designed to answer. They're far more important than the other two questions. These questions matter for your daily life. They matter for how you navigate your existence. So let's think about this. Who? What does Genesis 1 say about who made the universe? Well, the answer in Genesis 1, as we talked about last week, is that there is a God who made the world and he is utterly different than any other conception of God in the ancient world. Remember, in ancient creation myths, there were a pantheon of gods, lots of gods, and and they were all limited and they were all finite. And creation was either sex among the gods or warfare among the gods. And the earth was typically either the corpse of a vanquished god or a battlefield where gods were fighting and none of it was good. And humans, all we were was slave labor. It was a horrible story. It was tragedy. And yet you read Genesis 1 and it's an utterly different answer. Who made the world? One great good sovereign God. There is no warfare. There's no battlefield. He simply speaks and the world comes to be. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is wise. He is good. And so we see this wonderful story about this great God. That's who made it. And why did he make this world? Well, we talked about that. Why he made it for us. Because in Genesis 1, there's one creature that stands out from all other creatures. It's human beings. We alone are made in the image of God. We are the pinnacle, the climax of all of creation and the world and the entire universe was made for us. And so Genesis 1 is about how God takes this world that is formless and void, meaning it cannot support human life. That's a bad thing. And God brings order and he fills it and he prepares it for us so that it will be a good, beautiful, wonderful home for us. His image bearers. So when you think about Genesis chapter 1, it's, it's not about how God made the world. It's not about when God made the world. It's about who made it and why. It's not a textbook. It's a story of love about an incredible creator God who made a beautiful home for you and for me. And when we think about this, this beautiful home that God made for us as his image bearers, what I want to focus on some this morning is what does it mean that you and I are made in the image of God. Because I would submit to you that biblically, that is actually the single most important thing about you. Far more important than any other description or characteristic you could list for yourself is the fact that you as human are made in the image of God. Incredibly important. What does it actually mean to be made In the image of God. Well, three things, and conveniently for me as a preacher, they all start with the letter R. So, you can fill them in on your sheet. We've started filling in the blanks. So, how, when, who, why? Next, made in the image of God means, number one, we can relate to God. Humans have this unique ability to have a relationship with God that is not true of any other created life. And you see this in John chapter 1 verse 12, as well as many other verses in the Bible. But as many as received him, to them he, that is Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's a radical thing to say. When you trust in Jesus, you get to become a child of God. That's part of being made in the image of God. You can be a child of God. You can be in God's family. That's not true of a cow. A cow cannot be a son or daughter of God. It's just a cow. But you, as a human being, you can actually have a familial relationship with the creator of the universe. Where you call him dad and he calls you son or daughter. That's a a radical thing. 
the first part of being made in the image of God. Second part of being made in the image of God. We as humans can reflect God's character. We can reflect his moral character, his righteousness to the rest of creation. We see this in passages like 1 Peter chapter 1. Like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Holiness here, it means to be free of sin, to be morally righteous and upright. You have the ability to make moral choices. You realize no other creature does. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I have a dog. My dog sometimes makes choices I don't like. Sometimes my dog, um, particularly what we're working on, sometimes my dog will come in the house and pee on a bed. Now, when my dog makes that choice to pee on a bed, is that sinful? No. I don't like it, but there's no sin or righteousness in anything my dog does. My dog is simply acting by instinct and learned behavior, as all animals do. There's no morality in it. So how is it that your decisions have morality? Because you uniquely are made in the image of God. Like God, you can have holy behavior or unholy behavior. That is only true of human beings. You can reflect God's moral character through the choices that you make. This is actually why God will do a very strange thing in chapter 2 of Genesis. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this. If you know the story, God's going to plant a tree... And he's going to say, don't eat it. Okay, so, so this tree, knowledge of good and evil, he's going to plant it. And where does he plant it? Right in the middle of the garden. He plants it right there in front of Adam and Eve and says, don't eat from this one. All the others are okay. And I always wondered as a kid, why did you do that, God? Like, that just seems really tempting. Why not put it on Mount Everest or on Mars? Or don't put it anywhere to begin with. Well, actually, the tree is a gift. Why is it a gift? Because for Adam and Eve, if there was no tree that was forbidden, then they would have had no opportunity to make a moral choice. They would have been just like my dog. There would have been no morality in anything they could choose. And so God in grace give Adam and Eve the the gift of choice. Here you go. I'm going to put it right in front of you. You get to be like me. You get to be like God and make a morally significant decision. That's the point of planting the tree right in the middle of the garden. So second part of being made in the image of God, we can reflect God's moral character. Third part of being made in the image of God, we can radiate God's glory. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. I used to read this verse and just think, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's metaphorical. God crowns us with, with glory and majesty in terms of our spirituality. Um, but then I, I studied more of the Bible and I came to realize that actually any time in the Bible that someone spends time directly with God, they emit glory, literally. I want you to think about Moses. So Moses would go into God's presence in the tabernacle. And when he came out... What did he look like? He looked like a light bulb. He freaked everyone out. Remember, the Israelites had to put a veil in front of his face because they were so scared. And then Jesus, when he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and and Moses and Elijah join him, what do they look like? 
like light bulbs. They're shining so bright that the disciples cover their faces. Daniel tells us that in the resurrection, we, the righteous, will shine like the stars of the heavens. In other words, your physical body was designed to emit light. It doesn't now because of the next chapter in the story. But it will one day. You were designed to emit godlike majesty and you will in the resurrection. We've already seen hints of it in Moses and Elijah and, and Daniel. So you were created to emit godlike glory from your body. That's why, according to the Bible, your body matters so much to God. Your body is not incidental to your spirit. Your body is an absolutely essential part of what you are as a human because it was designed to emit godlike glory. Okay, so made in the image of God, you were designed to relate to God as a child in a family, reflect God's character in your moral decisions, and radiate God's glory through your physical body in the resurrection. All three of those together, that's what it means to be made in the image of God, and all three of them together allow you the result you can rule God's world. Which is what you're told to do in Genesis chapter 1. Humanity is created and then God says, fill and subdue the earth. Rule over it. In other words, God who is sovereign over the universe has entrusted some sovereignty to us. As his image bearers, we are designed to rule his world. And this is so important I find in in churches and in Christian circles. Because so many Christians have this idea That the point of your life is to go to heaven. That's not accurate. You get heaven if you trust in Jesus. That's good. But that's why it wasn't why you were made. God didn't make you so you could go to heaven when you die. God made you to rule. That's the essence of your purpose as a human. Is to rule God's world on God's behalf. And that leads us to the kind of the big summary statement of the Bible. So if the key word is Jesus, then then here's kind of the key sentence that ties the whole Bible together. Here is what God is doing from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. God is glorifying himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. That's the one sentence that unites the whole Bible. From cover to cover. God is glorifying himself. To glorify himself means that God is sharing. He is sharing his beauty and his splendor with creation. He wants everything in creation to see his beauty and love and wonder. So he's, he's building his kingdom on earth. His, his rule, the, the, the revelation of his glory and wonder. He's building it on earth and he's doing it through us. Not because he had to. I mean, God could have done it all himself better than us. But he so values us, he so loves us as his image bearers, that he entrusted us with this sacred responsibility to rule the earth so that it flourishes with God's glory. He wants us to extend his kingdom, his beauty, the wonder of who he is throughout the earth. You are called to do that as God's image bearer. That's what you are as a human. Most important thing about you. Far more important than your nationality, your ethnicity, your education level. You are made in the image of God. Now, here's, here's one practical connection. There's a lot in the news about human value these days. So questions like abortion, for example. Why do we think that abortion is not a good thing? Well, because according to the Bible, from the moment of conception to the moment of death, that human being is infinitely valuable. 
regardless of capacity, regardless of strength, they have innate, infinite value because they're made in the image of God. And that applies to everyone from the unborn child all the way to the 108-year-old in a vegetative state who can no longer communicate. And, and people wonder, what value does this person have to offer us? No, they have infinite value because they're made in the image of God. Every person, white, black, Hispanic, rich, poor, high school dropout, PhD, immigrant, criminal, all have infinite value because all are made in the image of God. And that's our answer to these moral questions about the value of various human beings. All are infinitely valuable to God because all are made in his image. Right? So chapter one of this story in Genesis God has lovingly created humanity to bear his image and rule his world. So chapter 1 is quite fun. Great chapter. All good news. Doesn't last long. So chapter 2. Revolt. We who are made in the image of God revolt. Um, I love the trilogy Lord of the Rings. I love watching them all. Really, Really fun to me. My wife Julie, she loves only the first five minutes. She likes the first five minutes because during the first five minutes you are in Hobbiton and they're throwing a party. And there's no stress and there's no evil. They're just having a birthday party. But five minutes in, the ring comes out and the wheels come off. And for the next nine hours, you're just watching all these creatures hack each other to death. Julie doesn't want that. But that's actually the story of the Bible. You get about five minutes where everything's a a party. And then the wheels come off. Evil enters into the story. We pick that up in this next chapter of revolt. So at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, everything in God's creation was very good. Now let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 3. So read with me chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now remember what what leads up to this. God gave Adam and Eve the gift of choice. He planted this forbidden tree in the middle of the garden and he gave them a very clear warning. Look back at chapter 2 for a moment. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. In Hebrew, you will die, die, meaning you will experience death in all of its forms. So God was very clear with human beings and and for a while Adam and Eve obey God. For a while they go along. We don't know how long that was, but at some point... Our enemy enters the picture. So this serpent comes into the garden. We don't know how he can talk. We don't know what's going on with him. Brings up lots of questions. What we do know is it really is not a serpent. This is the embodiment or possession by Satan. This is Lucifer. So when we think of Satan, what do we know about him? Not a lot, actually. The Bible's not really about him. We only get clues. We know that Satan was originally created totally good. 
He was created an angelic being by God. He was created one of the most beautiful and powerful angelic beings. He was lovely. And yet at some point in the distant past, before our story begins, he faced a choice. Will he choose in humility to worship his creator or will he choose in pride to worship himself? He chose pride. That was his fall. Many other angelic beings went with him and fell into pride. And now he enters into our story, into the human race, and he comes tempting Adam and Eve to, to take of the apple. Satan is, is committed to destroying all that God loves. And so he comes after us as, his, as God's image bears. He wants to destroy us. Because he hates all things that God has made. So he comes to Adam and Eve. And what's interesting is he tempts them in the same way he was tempted. Remember, what was Satan's temptation? Pride. That's exactly what he offers to Adam and Eve. You you can continue to follow God, sure. But you realize you could be God yourself. You could be like God. You don't need God. You could make your own decisions. You could be the one who chooses right and wrong. And so Adam and Eve face the same choice that Satan did. Will I in humility choose to obey my creator and worship him? Or will I in pride try to make myself God? Now what's interesting to see in Satan's fall and in Adam and Eve's fall. You are seeing the root of all sin. Every time you or I give into temptation the root issue is pride. Am I content in humility to recognize that I am a creature, that my creator knows what's best for me, even if I don't like it, and I'm going to obey him? Or will I, in pride, reach out and decide I get the right to choose what is right and wrong for me? That's the root of all sin, pride. And, and you know where this goes. Adam and Eve give in to pride. They take of the apple, they eat it, but instead of getting divinity like Satan promised, they get death. Death in all its forms, and it begins instantly. Death comes into Adam and Eve's life even before God shows up. So if you look with me at at how this plays out, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. A lot of people get hung up on, why why does it keep telling us that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed? What's going on with the nudity in the garden? It's not about nudity. It's about shame. Realize Adam and Eve could be naked because they had no concept of what human shame is. They had no word for it. They had never experienced it. You and I can't even imagine what existence would be like if we never knew shame. All of a sudden, they know it. They know shame. And so the desire to make clothing, it has nothing to do with nudity. They're trying to cover themselves and their shame up so that other people can't see it. So shame enters human experience instantly for the first time when they give in to sin. So this is the birth of shame. Now verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. What is this the birth of? Fear. Adam and Eve did not know fear. They had never experienced it, had no concept for fear. Now they do. Instantly, before God shows up, they feel 
fear. Fear of punishment. Fear of the evil they've done. Next consequence, verse 11. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the birth of blame in human relationships. They're trying to shift the responsibility off themselves. They're desperate to somehow excuse their sin. It's interesting to me, you notice God has not judged yet. God hasn't said a word of judgment. These three things come, shame, fear, and blame, instantly, unavoidably, naturally. When, whenever I'm asked, you know, why, why shouldn't I give in to sin? I mean, Jesus died for me, so I'm forgiven. Why not give in to that temptation? My, my answer always comes back to this, because you live in this universe, and in this universe... Shame, fear, and blame are the natural and unavoidable consequences of sin. You are as likely to escape them as you are the law of gravity. Because God built a moral universe. When you give in to sin, these are always the results. There is no possible way to avoid these three things. Because it was built into the fabric of the universe in which we live. So these three forms of death come instantly. God doesn't even have to speak. And already Adam and Eve are experiencing for the very first time shame, fear, and blame. But now it's time for God to speak. It's time for God to render judgment. And and it gets even worse at this point. So let's see what happens when God speaks words of judgment. Let's pick it up. We're going to skip a couple verses that we'll come back to. Let's pick it up in verse 16. This is God speaking. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God renders judgment, and the first part of judgment is the death of labor, the death of work. It's interesting, a lot of people think, well, work, that's part of the curse. No, actually, you were designed to work. Work is a wonderful thing. You would be really bored without it. But in the curse, your work was cursed. Your work was broken. And and you see that both for Adam and for Eve. So Eve, her God-given work was to bear children. Now that process will be painful and fraught with danger. So imagine before the fall, childbirth and raising children would be all joy all the time. For those of you who are parents, you know that's not the case now. So her work is broken. Adam, his work was to provide for his family. Before the fall, providing for your family was just reaching up and there it is. There you go. Have that. Now he's going to have to toil and sweat and break his back to somehow bring forth uh, produce. So work or labor is cursed. Second, death of relationship. So all of the relationships that Adam and Eve had are broken in this moment. So they had a relationship with each other. 
husband and wife. And now there will be strife there. Both of them will be competing with one another. The Hebrew is interesting. Adam, Eve will be wanting to supplant Adam and, and the husband, he will be wanting to oppress his wife. That's, that's the beginning of this conflict between men and women. Also, their relationship with creation will be broken. Before the fall, humanity and creation got along perfectly. Now, no longer the case. We in creation are at odds with one another. Worst of all, human relationship to God is broken. The most important relationship in the world is now fractured. So you have death of relationships. You have death of our bodies. So God says, Adam, you're going to die. Now, how did this begin? Did did God flip the switch and all of a sudden Adam began to die? It's, It's not really like that, we don't think. We think that humans were created with what we might call provisional immortality. In other words, you were created just like all other animal life. You live in a universe where entropy rules. If left to yourself, your body will wind down and you will die. But Adam and Eve lived in a special place called the Garden of Eden, where they had access to a special tree called the Tree of Life. And as long as they were in the garden partaking of the Tree of Life, it seems that that tree undid the results of entropy. So that they would be alive. They would never age. They would never decay. So long as they stayed in the garden with God and the tree of life. But now God kicks them out. You can no longer be here. And as soon as they no longer have access to God's presence to the tree of life. Entropy kicks in. And they begin to decay just like you and I. From that moment on humans begin to experience this thing called physical death. But there is one more And it is the worst of all. The worst result of the fall is the death of our spirits. That part of us that was designed to be in relationship with God, as a child of God, being with God, knowing him as father forever, that is broken by sin. And and you see that explained clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, you, humanity, us, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. We became part of his family, of of his kingdom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were designed to be children of love, children of God, living with him in fellowship forever, but because of the fall, now we're broken. We're born separated from God, his enemies, children of wrath. So this is about as bad as it could be. Adam and Eve's choice has broken everything. And yet, even in the midst of such horrific news, there is hope. There is good news in this passage. We skipped over it, so we're going to go back and read it now. I want you to look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now at first, this is just about snakes. And my son, who's nine, he always wonders, so did snakes have legs before this? Because now, as part of the curse, they're on their bellies. I don't know, Luke. I I don't know what's going on here. Um, At first, it's just about snakes and about the fact that humans and snakes don't like each other very much. 
But at the end of the passage that we read, the pronouns change, and it's really significant. In verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, all snakes, and her seed, all humans. But here's where it changes. He, singular, shall bruise you, singular, you the snake I'm talking to, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here at at the very end of the passage, God stops speaking in plural about all humans and all snakes, and he talks about one snake, this one serpent, which is actually not a serpent, remember? This is Satan. And instead of talking about all humans, he talks about one male human, he. This is the first promise of the gospel. God is telling Adam and Eve, there is going to be a deliverer, and he's going to come from you. A son of Eve will come who will crush your enemy, Satan, on the head. And that's a death blow. You crush a snake's head, the snake is dead. He, however, will strike the heel of your male descendant. And in a world that didn't have antivenom, that brings death. So this is going to be a dual death blow. The promised son of Eve will die. The serpent will die. But in that exchange, humanity will be delivered. That is the first promise of the gospel. Now, were Adam and Eve hearing Jesus in this promise? No, they didn't have nearly enough information for that yet. All they're hearing is that God hadn't given up on them yet. God had a plan to use a human being, a descendant of Eve, to deliver the human race from our enemy. And so there's hope There's good news. Deliverance is coming, but it's a long ways off. And in the meantime, things get even worse. So if you've read Genesis, you know where things go. So Genesis 3, humans are stealing fruit. Genesis 4, humans are murdering each other. Very fast learners. Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. Violence on the earth grows so bad that by Genesis 6, God sends a flood to hit reset, start over with Noah's family. Sin does not end. Sin continues to propagate, leads up to the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, all of humanity unites once again in pride, because that's the root of all sin. And they say, let's build a tall tower so that we can take the place of God. And so God shows up and says, okay, all right, you guys. Every time I let you work together, it goes bad. Anytime humans unite together, they're going to unite together in rebellion. So you know what? I'm going to divide you. I'm going to separate you. And so that's Tower of Babel. God goes from treating humans as one group to splitting us into every nationality, every ethnicity, every language. He's going to divide us so he can save us one family at a time. So if you think about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have gone from paradise to Mad Max Thunderdome in no time at all. Okay, so the story has gone really poorly, but God hasn't given up on us. He's going to begin this deliverance through a male descendant of Eve. So that's where we go in the next chapter of the story. So we have hope in the gospel. Let's move from revolt to promise. Our third chapter in this one great story of scripture. God has not given up on us. He has a plan to fix what we, humanity, had broken. And that plan begins with a promise to restore humanity through the family of Abraham. This is where Abraham enters the story. Abraham is a really important person to know in the Bible. In fact, I I tell people who are new to Christianity, new to the Bible, that if you're going to know one person in the Bible other than Jesus, it should be Abraham. He's, he's the most important person other than Jesus to know. 
So Abraham and his family, the promises that God is going to make to them are going to frame the entire rest of the Bible. So let's meet Abraham. Turn to Genesis 11. So you can turn to the right just a little bit in your Bible. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. Verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We meet Abraham in this passage. We we meet him in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. So a little, little geography here. Here's a map. Ur is in modern day Iraq. Um, wouldn't be far from where basically the Tigris and Euphrates come together. And God calls Abram to leave Ur and to travel to the land of Canaan, which we now call Israel, that promised land that God has given to the Israelites. So God tells Abraham to leave Ur and go to, to Canaan. But when we meet Abraham, there's a couple problems that this guy has. Two really significant problems for Abraham. The first is he's an idolater. Abraham is an idolater. In, in Ur of the Chaldeans, they worshiped the moon god. That was the deity for their city. And we know that from the book of Joshua that Abraham and his family also worshiped the moon god. So Abraham, when we meet him, he's not worshiping the one true god. He's worshiping the moon. And that tells us right from the beginning that God's choice is based on grace. Abraham did not deserve to be chosen by God. He was a sinner just like anyone else. And yet in grace, God chooses Abraham. However, seeing that God made a choice based on grace, we also see that Abraham has a long ways to go to be this image bearer representing God to the world. He's not even representing the right God to the world yet. He needs a a lot of growth in his life. Okay, so that's the first problem that we see. He's an idolater who needs to grow so that he can represent God to the world. Second problem that we see in Abraham's life, he's childless. He and Sarai, who becomes Sarah, he becomes Abraham, she becomes Sarah. God names them, renames them later. Sarai is 75 when we meet her and she's not been able to have children. And so by natural human means, she's infertile. She's not going to be able to have a child. Infertility is hard at all times and places, but in the ancient world, it was a curse. Because in the ancient world, your children were your significance and your security in life. And so to to be childless was an utter curse. 
So Abraham, he's an idolater and he's childless. Those are two major problems. And the Abrahamic story is about how God is going to fix both of those problems in Abraham's life. Okay, that's kind of the plot that drives the story of Abraham. God is going to fix both of these things. And so God's solution to these two problems begins with a promise that he makes to Abraham that we call the Abrahamic covenant. And you've read the the genesis of that promise, the beginning of that promise. God promises to Abraham, first of all, land. I'm going to give you land. And in the next chapter, chapter 13, God tells Abraham the exact boundaries of that land. This is it. We can actually trace it out today. It's from the Euphrates in the north to the Nile in the south and everything in between. That's the land of Abraham. It's it's huge, massive, much bigger than what Israel is today. So that's the land promised to Abraham. Seed, meaning Abraham, you will have descendants. You may be childless now, but you won't be for long. God is going to bless him with a mighty family. And finally, blessing. Uh, So blessing is kind of a generic term that refers to God being good to you, bringing prosperity to you, showing favor to you. Abraham is going to have wealth and safety and fame. But the most important promise of all in this passage is at the very end. If you looked at that, at the very end of verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That takes us back to Genesis 3. When God said that through one male descendant of Eve, the serpent, Satan, your enemy, will be defeated. Now we know it's not just any descendant of Eve, it's a descendant of Abraham. A child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, will be the deliverer who brings God's blessing to the whole world. So you can think of the Old Testament, God is narrowing the funnel. It was any male descendant of Eve. Now it's, no, it's, it's a descendant of Abraham who's going to be the promised deliverer. To set us free from our enemy. Okay, So amazing promises that God makes to Abraham. These promises are formalized into a covenant. A contract between God and Abraham in chapter 15. So you can turn to chapter 15. So 15 it's turned into a covenant. But something even more important happens in chapter 15. This is the chapter where Abraham is saved by faith. As best we can tell. Look at chapter 15 starting in verse 5. And he that is God took him that is Abraham outside and said. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him so shall your descendants be. Then he that is Abraham believed in the Lord. And he that is the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That, that phrase reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's legal terminology. It's the word justification. It means that God was declaring, Abraham, you are right in my sight based on your choice to believe. Paul is going to quote that verse over and over and over again in the New Testament as he describes to us how our salvation works. And Paul's point is that salvation has always been by faith alone. From Adam all the way to whoever the last person is going to be. Salvation is always by faith alone. It's never been by work. Some people errantly think sometimes, well, the, in, in the Old Testament, salvation was by following the law. In the New Testament, salvation is by believing in Jesus. No, it's never about the law. Salvation, being declared right in God's sight, being forgiven by God, that has always been by faith alone. Now, faith in what? Faith in Jesus? Well, Abraham didn't know Jesus. He didn't have that information yet. 
So what did Abraham believe? Well, what God had revealed so far, that God exists, that he makes gracious promises, and that he'll fulfill them. And so we're being told, Abraham believed God, took him at his word, believed God would fulfill his promises, and God said, that's the required content of faith. I declare you are in the right. Today, we know more than Abraham did. We know not only does God exist and keep his promises, but he he kept his ultimate promise by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins and rise from the dead. So that's the content we have to believe, but we're saved in exactly the same way Abraham was. The same way anyone who's ever been saved has been saved, by faith alone. Okay, so Abraham is saved by faith alone here in chapter 15. Really significant moment, but he still has those same two problems in his life. He still does not have a son with Sarah. He's still barren. And he's still struggling with sin. He's still struggling to walk by faith and obedience. So in chapter 12, Abraham gives in to fear. And he gives away his wife Sarah to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is going to make a concubine out of Sarah. And God has to step in and deliver her. It's a mess. Abraham does it again in chapter 20. Even after this moment in chapter 15. Abraham struggles to be a good image bearer. To show the world how great God is. He's really struggling. And so God is still working in Abraham's life. God is still working to to fix these two problems. And he fixes the first problem. Abraham's childlessness in chapter 21. In chapter 21, God gives Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. And it's clearly a miracle because at the time, Sarah is like 90 years old, well past childbearing age, and yet she has this promised son. It seems like what Abraham has wanted his whole life has come true, but the story is not over yet. Okay, so first problem, childlessness fixed in chapter 21. Second problem that Abraham is not following God yet, that's fixed in chapter 22. So turn to chapter 22. This is the climax of the whole story with Abraham. Incredibly important chapter of scripture. God is going to bring things to a head to show us how much Abraham has grown as an image bearer. Look with me, chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It's hard to fathom how hard this command is. Abraham waited his entire life. It's like over 100 years old now. To have Isaac. As soon as he has Isaac, God says, okay, now take him and kill him. I want you to take him to a mountain and sacrifice him to me. Can't fathom how gut-wrenching that command would be. And yet Abraham obeys immediately. Look at the next verse. So Abraham rose early in the morning. There's no hesitation saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. That little detail always amazes me. On the third day. What that means is that Abraham chooses to obey instantly in the morning when he wakes up from that dream and and takes his son and begins to go to where he's going to sacrifice him. And it takes three days to get there. Meaning, what are Abraham and Isaac doing for three days? Camping. It's a camping trip. He's out with his son. He's making a fire. Set up the tent. 
Look out at the stars every night. Cook your food. You're having a camping trip with your boy and you're the only one who knows how it's going to end. I can't fathom how gut-wrenching that would be. Yet Abraham keeps obeying God. All the way through it, look down at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham was willing to obey to the utter end. And then God steps in and God delivers Isaac because God loves our kids more than we do. God wasn't about to let Isaac be sacrificed. God wanted Abraham to have an opportunity to prove how much he had grown. And that helps us understand what this test is all about. It is an opportunity for Abraham to show the world how much he has grown to trust his God. It is fascinating. If you look at world culture today, did you know that there are many, many billions of people on this planet right now who regard Abraham to be an absolute hero? Why? Because of chapter 22. I'm not just talking about Christians. Jews, Muslims, we all look up to Abraham as the greatest faith ever displayed because of chapter 22. This was Abraham's moment to show the world how he had grown in the image of God, to trust God. Even when God's commands didn't make sense, he would trust God no matter what. And so what that's teaching us about the story of Abraham is it's not just about God's promise. It's also about God's process of transforming Abraham into his likeness. This story about Abraham, the second most important person in the Bible, is not just about how Abraham receives promises from God. It's about this process, this journey that God takes Abraham on to transform him into a hero of the faith who would be an example to billions of people for millennia of what it looks like to completely trust God. And there's a lesson there for us. There's, there's so much we can learn from Abraham's lives. One of those key lessons is that God's gifts in our lives are always designed to help us grow. God didn't just bless Abraham for the sake of blessing Abraham. He blessed Abraham so that Abraham could grow into an example to the world of how trustworthy God is. God was showing the world through Abraham that you can trust him. Because of Abraham's incredible obedience, God takes this moment in his life to seal the covenant with the most binding thing God has available to him. He seals it with an oath. This is the first oath we have in scripture. Look with me at chapter 22, verse 16, really significant passage. This is God speaking. He says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. 
And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This oath, God swears upon himself. He makes the covenant irrevocable. This is what the rest of the Bible is about. All all the rest of the Bible is God fulfilling that oath. God keeping the sworn oath he made with Abraham. And, And the really significant thing that you're seeing here is the importance of obedience. Here at Grace Bible Church, we we always talk about how salvation is by faith alone. Obedience isn't how you get to heaven. That's absolutely true. But we never want you to walk out of here with the misconception that because of grace, your obedience doesn't matter. That couldn't be further from the truth. Look at Abraham's life. How much did obedience matter to Abraham's life? It mattered incredibly. If Abraham would not have obeyed God in Genesis 22, what would have happened? Well, Abraham would have still gone to heaven because he was saved by faith alone, but he would have lost the covenant. It would have maybe gone to his son or someone else. We don't know, but he would have lost it. But for Abraham to to receive this covenant once and for all in irrevocable form and become this hero of the faith to the whole world, he needed more than faith. He needed to obey. Your obedience matters if you want to become a person like Abraham who changes the world. If you want to become a a hero to other men and women, showing them what it looks like to follow Jesus, you have to obey. Obedience is crucial to God completing the mission he has for you in life. You were designed to trust in Jesus and follow it up with obedience so that you could become a world-changing image maker. So, when we look at Abraham and his story, it ends happily. Abraham gets both of the things he wanted. He's become like God and he has a son. So that's great. Abraham's story on Mount Moriah ends well. The irony is, as best we can tell, This is the same place where God's son will not be spared. We don't know the exact geography, but as best we can tell, Mount Moriah will eventually become Jerusalem. And it is there where God's own son will be sacrificed and there will be no ram caught in the thicket to take his place. So it's interesting when you think of the story of Abraham and Isaac, uh, it's a very significant story, but it's also, it's a prototype It's foreshadowing. It's telling us what's coming. That there will be another father who will have to sacrifice another son and that son won't be spared. That son will die as the ultimate sacrifice for all human sin. Isaac is pointing us to Jesus because again, the whole story is about Jesus. It's all leading us up to him. Next week, we'll look at the rest of the Old Testament. We'll see how it continues this journey Towards Jesus. In the meantime, I encourage you, please read those key passages, think about those reflection questions, and let this material sink in. Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the amazing story you have recorded in Scripture. We praise you and we thank you for your good and wonderful creation. We praise you and thank you that you didn't give up on us when we chose sin. We praise you and we thank you for how you chose Abraham and through him have brought about this amazing covenant of promise. This hope of a redeemer who would bring blessing to all the world. We thank you that you are a good God with a good plan. Help us to trust you just like Abraham did, trusting you completely. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week as we continue the story.